be in Luke chapter 14. No intro this time. We're just going to jump in, okay? Luke 14, 1. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. Sounds like a fun dinner. There in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. Some versions will say dropsy. That's probably what this was. Abnormal swelling from in his body. Jesus asked the Pharisees and the experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. Then he asked them, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers, your sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So the title of my lesson today is Gospel Identity. Um, and so this is kind of a, 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 tri- a triangle of a story. We have three different things happening. Jesus is invited over to dinner. They're kind of watching him closely. Uh, and then there's a man with dropsy there. I don't know. People seem to find where Jesus is having meals. I don't know how or why, but I guess when you have a reputation like Jesus, you ask questions and you show up. Uh, so the man with dropsy shows up. Dropsy is a swelling, uh, usually uh, it's a a fluid uh, accumulation in the body, sometimes uh, connected to congenital heart failure. Uh, But at the time, the belief was um, that dropsy was, your body would get engorged. And so it was a belief that it was because of your greed. You were so greedy that your body was literally, you were were manifesting physically in your body. And so not only did people think, well, you shouldn't heal them or shouldn't help them because this this is what they deserve, but also it's on the Sabbath. You could only heal on the Sabbath If what? If it was life-threatening. You couldn't heal on the Sabbath if it wasn't life-threatening. Jesus had a a, a propensity of healing people on the Sabbath for the smallest of things. Uh, Remember in Luke 13, we talked about the crippled woman, the hunchback woman. She was healed on the Sabbath. And the, the, the main problem that the synagogue ruler had was, hold on, you can do that tomorrow. Don't do it today. It's the Sabbath. Right? So similar problem. So, Kind of funny how Luke tells, in fact, if this is just chapter 14, it's a chapter ago. Why is Luke telling us the same story again? It's the exact same situation, just crippled woman, man with dropsy. They have the same opposition. Jesus gives the same rebuttal. And then it's, you know, the, it's the ox, animal falls into a well, you know, counter. That must have been one of Jesus's main zingers. He's like, and it was like probably famous because he, he says, says, says it a couple times here, but they're, they're silent. And then out of nowhere, Jesus is like, and by the way, I noticed how when you showed up, you all kind of took the places of honor. 
Don't do that because you could choose a place of great uh, worth and then have be asked to sit somewhere else. Can you imagine if our dinner parties were like this? This is how it was back then. To invite somebody to dinner, A, you invite somebody only who, because uh, back then gifts of grace were always strings attached. Uh, gifts of, in the sense that like you would want to repay me. So if I invite you over for dinner, you're now going to try to invite me over for dinner. Um, and so that's why you never invited the, the poor uh, or the people who didn't have resources because A, uh, they couldn't pay you back. But even more importantly, you put them in an awkward situation because they can't pay you back. Right? If it'd be like if Bobby gave me a Lamborghini. Sounds nice, but on some level, I'd be like, I can't accept this. I could never repay you. I could never. You're putting me in a bad place. I can't accept that gift. It's, it's almost like an insult in some ways. Does that make sense? So, so that's why the poor are left out, the oppressed. And by the way, in the Old Testament and in the Bible, the word poor can mean both poor in the sense of I don't have resources, but poor in the sense of I have resources, but y'all keep taking them. So it can, mean, it can mean oppressed. It can also mean economically, I just, I have nothing. Okay. And so it can mean both those things. But either way, Jesus is at dinner and he's uncomfortable of all the things he's seeing. And so he decides to tell a few stories. And like anybody who's prideful and defensive, you can't tell them they're prideful and defensive. You've got to tell a story about an ox somewhere. And then they'll, they'll maybe hear you, I guess. Um, it reminds me of a story. I love that Jesus does that. I wish I was good at it. Um, but uh, it reminds me of this one story, yeah. But Jesus is basically pointing out all these things that, that bother him. And he says, listen, when you come to dinner, don't take the places of, high, of, of importance. It'd be like if I invited you guys over for dinner, maybe 10 of you, and I had my, my favorite sit next to me, and then my least favorite sit down at the end, right? Um, so that's kind of how it went. <laughs> but that was a way of knowing your station in society. Um, and so today I want to talk about identity. This is what's called a traditional or Eastern uh, identity uh, process, right? You know how valuable you are from the outside in. What people say about me will then inform my self-worth. This was part and parcel. It was every fiber of Jesus's society was I'm only good. I'm only accepted if my society says I am. How do I know? How many times am I getting invited to dinner? What seat am I sitting in at dinner? Who's complimenting me? Who's encouraging me? And so you can see the problem is who's not getting invited? Who's left out of this picture? It's the oppressed. It's the poor. And I want to kind of talk about two things, kind of two points. And I want to talk about identity. um, But I, I want to really briefly before that just reiterate something I feel like we probably don't talk about enough. Um. You know, and even as I was writing this sermon, I thought, man, we should probably emphasize this in the seeker Bible studies more than we do. But I think we're, too often the church relegates the ministry to the poor as optional. Yeah. It's, this, it's this, if you want, it's this, it's this committee at best. We have the, the ministry to the poor committee you can be part of. And it's this, like, if you want. But if we look at the Bible... If we look at not just Jesus, but the entire Bible, I think we, we fool ourselves that the kingdom of God surely is more than the ministry to the poor, but it surely cannot be less. Yeah. Yeah. That the, the, the Old Testament actually talks about the main symbol, that how we know that the world is broken and we live in a fallen world is, is the economic and social poverty all around us. You read the Old Testament, that's what you walk away with. 
that this is a huge problem, that there's sin in the world, and that sin enters into society. That society then has the haves and then the have-nots, the people that are left out. Remember when Jesus comes on the scene and John the Baptist, John the Baptist, mind you, is unsure if it's Jesus, like if it's the real Messiah. Remember what Jesus says? Tell John it's really me. You know how he'll know? I'm preaching to the poor. This is what the suffering servant from Isaiah was expected to do. This is what the Messiah was always going to do. Jesus' first sermon in Luke 4. What's it about? I've come to bring sight to the blind and I've come to unshackle the oppressed. I've come to help the poor. Surely the kingdom of heaven belongs to who? The poor. The poor in spirit. I think too often we forget this. Even right now we're in the middle of a special contribution and it's, and it's, I know that we've gone through a really tough 12 months, a lot of us, but in a lot of ways, it's, it's so, especially when we go through hard times, it's easy to focus on our own hurt. And we, and, we, and we stop seeing the hurts of those around us, especially those that, that are oppressed. You know, uh, I think it's Proverbs, I have it in my notes here. Proverbs 23, 13, I believe. It's a beautiful passage. No, I flipped it. Proverbs 13, 23. I have no idea what 23, 13 says, but maybe it helps in some way. Um, Proverbs 13, 23 says, it's not that the poor, I think we need to change our mindset toward the poor in some ways. Proverbs 13, 23 says, it's not that the poor don't have resources. Proverbs 13, 23 says, the, 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 uh, the fields of the poor bear fruit, but injustice sweeps it away. It's not that the poor don't have opportunity, it's just that it's taken from them. You know, uh, it's, it's just that, and so we got to be aware too, sometimes we think, and there's a, get back to my perspectives here, on one side, we have a conservative perspective, I'm going to call that traditional, and on the other side, we have a liberal perspective, I'm going to call that modern, okay, traditional, modern. In a traditional perspective, it can be easy to think, what Jesus' dinner party is probably thinking, is the poor shouldn't be so poor, it's their own fault, why don't they just work hard, contribute and then they can get here. We don't have to help them and give them a handout, blah, 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 right? But the other perspective, the modern perspective, a perspective that's very common now, especially with my generation, is, is no, we should help the poor economically, but they're, but they're still keeping a distance between themselves and the poor. They're not sending their kid to school with those other kids. They're not living in that community. They might open a business in that community, but they're not going to live there. And so... I actually will advocate this morning for neither a traditional worldview and not a modern worldview, but a gospel worldview, but a gospel sense of how to preach, how to know who we are and our self-worth, but also how to interpret the world around us. So that was my poor message to the poor, message to the oppressed, tangent a bit. But I do believe Proverbs 13, 23, it helps me to go there and say, I got to change the way I view people. Uh, I guess I'll tell a story. Why not? It seems to help sometimes to tell a story. But there was a preacher. There was a preacher who went to a city. He didn't name the city for reasons you'll see. He went to a city and he was ministering to that city. And there was a beautiful young woman there. Beautiful teenage woman uh, named Eva. And uh, Eva had told him right before summer, told the minister, I'm getting pressure. Uh, This is a poor community. I'm getting pressure from this gang to to be brought into basically a prostitution ring. And the minister told her, uh, you know, say no. Looked at passages about resist. Satan, he will flee from you. Resist, say no, just don't. He goes summer vacation, he comes back. Bible study, no Eva. So he finds her, 
she kind of says, she hangs her head. She says, I, I've given in. He says, what? Why didn't you just say no? Why didn't you just resist? She says, well, they, this is a true story. She says, well, they, they beat up my dad. They beat up my brother and they were threatening my mother with, with my, my mother with horrible things. I just had to say, I had to give in. And he goes, why didn't you go to the police? She says, who do you think the prostitution ring is run by? And so his, it's amazing. It's just, that's a true story from a certain city. I don't know where. But the, the, the minister was saying, listen, my worldview was just stop. Just say no. Just don't. You don't have to be oppressed. You don't have to be poor. Stop. She's saying, I, no, I, I, I have the fruit in the field. It's been taken from me. A lot of you, a lot of, there's a lot of beautiful people out there, but there's not people taking it away from you. Like they took it away from Eva. And so seeing people as oppressed, seeing them as poor, changing our perspective is so important. Um, And a part of that, too, is seeing ourselves as oppressed and poor. There's a reason that the kingdom of heaven belongs to the poor in spirit. You'll never, you might get religion if you're middle class in spirit or or upper class in spirit, but you'll never get the gospel. Right? You can go to a church and say, hey, yeah, you can come to our, our religion. Yeah, you can just give tithe and you can show up and you can contribute and have your, you know, use your intellect and academics and use your resources for our religion. But, you know, but if you ever preach to, to people in really oppressed communities, they don't, they don't want nothing to do with your religion. They want the gospel. So the gospel is what will bring hope. It will bring transformation and true experiential change. And you can have your religion all you want, but we want to have the gospel. That's what Jesus is constantly doing. It's sounding repetitive. I believe that Luke includes the same story twice in just a matter of a chapter because sometimes we got to hear it more than once to get deeper. We can just go, oh yeah, Drew said give to the poor. Okay, that's it. No, Jesus says this isn't about giving to the poor. It's not a, because guess what Jews were supposed to do at this time? Give to the poor. Almsgiving. They're supposed to give. But Jesus actually goes deeper. Can you imagine how radical this sounds? He doesn't say give to the poor. He says, you know what you need to do at your next banquet? Don't invite these people. Invite the lame, the crippled, the poor. Bring them into your home. When you give an act of grace to somebody at this time, it establishes a relationship, a friendship. Can you imagine the air getting sucked out of the room? Jesus is saying, build friendships, build inroads, build connections to the people that not only can't pay you back, but let's be honest, to the people that, that need it. And so, church, I want to encourage us that the kingdom of heaven certainly is more than the ministry to the poor, but it cannot, surely not be less. And I pray that we can remember that uh, as a primal uh, aspect of the gospel, of what it is to preach the gospel. Whew, long tangent, but important one, I think. Um, so going on to the, to the, to the worldview, this is not just, about, it's not just about the poor. Like I just said, kingdom of heaven is bigger than, than the ministry to the poor. And so it's not just about that. Jesus is doing something here that's powerful. He's striking at the culture. And it's amazing how often Jesus attacks or at least wants to help people become aware of their culture. And I want to beg you to get really good at becoming aware of your culture. Because if you're not aware of it, you're going to probably be a slave to it. You're not going to know it. You're going to think you're highly, you're free and I make all my own decisions. But the only reason you do that is because your culture tells you to. And so it's, it's good to be aware of that culture so we're not influenced in either way. But both, both the traditional and the modern perspective, uh, I think, put enorm, enormous pressure on us and lead to 
all sorts of sin, breakdown, and lack, I think, ultimately leaving God. Ooh, the modern worldview. Where are my young people at, right? You guys are probably, we're probably on this one together, okay? Because we watch movies like, uh, uh, what's the uh, Let It Go movie? Um, Frozen, right? Frozen is a movie about a girl who went from a traditional worldview to a modern one. It was, I'm not going to let my society influence who I am as a person. I'm going to work not from the outside in in terms of self-worth. I'm going to work from the inside out. That's modern. Inside out in terms of self-worth. And I'm going to say, no, I'm going to decide who I am and y'all going to have to deal with it. You're going to get on board with my version of who I am and no one can take that away from me. It's a whole movie about, right, moving to a... Uh, uh, Moana, also a movie about moving from a traditional, I'm in a tribe, a culture, that tribe is informing who I should be. No, I'm going to find Dwayne The Rock Johnson and get out of here. Very crucial to uh, the modern viewpoint is Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Not not really, but uh, some some, some other folks, maybe you're not like, I don't watch animated movies, Drew. Come on, give me live action, at least some live action. What about Babe, Pig in the City? Remember Babe? Babe was like, I'm a sheepdog. And there, his community said, you are not, in fact, a sheepdog. You are a pig. What's the heroic narrative of that movie? Babe becomes a sheepdog, right? <laughs> that's, that's the heroic narrative of the movie. Actually, most movies now have that, that same trajectory. That is what uh, we really, we eat, sleep, and drink. Um, American Girl Dolls. Don't ask why I know this. American Girl Dolls. American Girl Dolls, right, initially were given to reinforce a young girl's perspective of a traditional role in society. It was going to say raising kids is hard, but it's valuable, and we want to kind of help reinforce that perspective, right? I'm not saying that's good. I'm saying that was the traditional perspective. Go to the American Girls Doll, American Girls Doll site today. No, it is. The first picture is called selfie expression, and it's a picture of the American Girl Dolls taking a selfie and you can change the outfit. And I think the little blurb says, "Find you can help your daughter find her inner star and that no one can ever change who she is. I don't think either of those are a gospel identity. One, because it, it puts enormous pressure on people to tell them that they are unique and they're the, they're the only one in the world who is like them and they have to be a constant standout all the time. It's a lot of pressure to constantly stand out all the time. Now, I know that it comes from a good place of like, yes, we are all special and unique in a certain way, but if, if we constantly say that we're not going to let anyone else help us find out who we are, we're just going to do it ourselves, that leads to, I have listed six things that I think are highly destructive. One is it's unstable. It's unstable. It's going to spell out U-F-C-F-E-H. U-F-C-F-E. That's what it's going to spell. But unstable, you know, a modern worldview leads to instability because it's based on your feelings. And have you met you? Your feelings are going to change. You're constantly, if, if your emotions are your star, how you feel is your star, it's unstable. Uh, it's fragile, right? Because no one can really give themselves validation. They've done so many studies on this. You cannot really give yourself validation all by yourself. We need outside validation at some level. You need at some level other people to help you, to, to help validate you. Okay, it's fragmenting because you can never really fully commit to anything because your culture tells you you must keep all your options open because personal happiness is the most important thing. So commitment's very hard. I see this a lot. A lot of Gen Z folks aren't getting driver's licenses, right? I don't want to, 
a lot of commitment. It's like, no, why, why should I get committed to something? I, gotta, I don't want to make a wrong decision. It'll jeopardize my personal happiness, which to a modern worldview is number one. It's exclusive. You guys been living in our country? It's exclusive. When my self-worth comes from my politics, by nature, I must hate other politics. When my self-worth comes from being a man, I must hate the other gender. When my self-worth comes from being of my race, being white, I must hate other races. When my self-worth comes from being an intellectual, guess what? It's by nature, it's an exclusive worldview. We, don't, we would never say that, but it's reality. And finally, it's hypocritical. You know, there was a, a therapist recently who told somebody, don't ever let anyone tell you what you should believe and what you should do and how valuable you are. It's a hypocrite because you just said it. You just said, don't let anyone give you a moral absolute. Yet you just gave her one. Right? It's at the end of the day, it is hypocritical, right, to, to do that. And as, as, as perilous as a modern world, worldview is, and I believe it is perilous, I think from Jesus' perspective, a traditional one is more dangerous. It's more dangerous. You know how I know? The parable of the prodigal son. Who do we have? Two worldviews. We have the younger son, who is a modern worldview, essentially. Give me my money, let me do what I want. No one can tell me, adios, I'm going to do my own thing. Traditional worldview, let me, traditionalists, right? I'm, I got a little bit of that in me. Let me work hard and stuff my emotions and do your duty. Get the job done. I don't care how you feel. It's the older brother, right? And so we have both, but the thing is, is which brother comes to repentance in the story? It's the younger brother. I don't think Jesus is advocating for either one. I think he's simply saying that the traditional worldview is dangerous because it means you can go to church and think you're okay, and not realize you need to repent. And a lot of us today, perhaps we believe in Christ, we call ourselves Christians, but I believe a lot of us today really follow a traditional worldview. The traditional worldview says, I must achieve before I'm received. I got to achieve before I'm received. And, and that's how we kind of, and we, so it's, it's difficult, it's pressure. Both worldviews put an enormous pressure on you. One says to constantly stand out and be unique and, and excel all the time and, and constantly have like these feelings that guide you. The other one, you're, you're either way over the moon because your society is saying at a boy or at a girl or you're completely crushed and insecure. Uh, you know, there's, there's a beautiful thing about gospel identity, a beautiful thing that neither one of these have. Because when you have a traditional worldview, it's easy to be bold if you're accepted. My family loves me. I will be bold. But when your family rejects you, turn to insecurity, right? Withdraw, um, pull away. Sometimes when we get rejected, we dom- try to dominate, try to force, try to manipulate. Um, but the thing is, is it's very rare to have both boldness, courage, and humility. Look what Jesus does in this story. He says, guys, stop doing all this stuff about okay, should we observe the Sabbath and should we have the highest position and I'm going to obsess over what people think of me? Guys, you got to be humble. You got to take the lowest seat of honor and you got to be bold and invite the poor, the crippled, the lame to dinner. How in the world can we be bold and humble? It's very rare. You don't meet a lot of people in the world who are both bold and humble. Being bold in a traditional perspective is hard because it's easy to get prideful. It's like, I achieved. 
I am worth God's love, right? But it's hard in the modern worldview because it can be a lot of, it can be constantly changing. You know, even if you reach out perhaps a Christian to a Muslim or a Muslim to a Jew, even though they have different views of the absolute, you can kind of still have a conversation because there's an absolute. It's common now for a modern to believe that simply sharing your faith with someone is the greatest evil that you could ever do because you're, you're ascribing an absolute. You're telling me what I have to do. You're implying that this has to get done. It's the worst thing that you could do, right? And so puts us puts us in a tough spot. One of the mo- most beautiful things you can do, and I found this at, at UVA especially, but just helping people become aware that their culture is influencing no, them. It. Not to change their mind per se, but this guy was talking once at UVA on the lawn, and he was so passionate. I just asked a few questions. And I just said, dude, I just want you to know that these, as much as you believe these thoughts are unique and your own, and they're really just aspects of this greater worldview, which is a Western, white, individualistic worldview. And he was like, no one's ever said that to me before. You know? He's like, I'm going to think about that. <laughs> you know? and, but I think just getting people to become aware of what's influencing them. If we really are going to be a Romans 12, 2 church, do not be conformed to the culture of your world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We've got to strive for gospel identity. And one of the beautiful things about gospel identity is that it allows us to be both bold and humble. We're humble because we get, we get our validation from the outside. You've got to. You've got to get your validation from the outside. But don't get it innately and explicitly from the community. You're getting your validation from the only one who can truly validate you. God. You know, modernism does a really good, is really good on emotions. Maybe too good. The problem with modern, modernism about emotions is that we're so in our emotions that emotions become the most important thing. I have to break commitments because I don't feel good. Whereas the traditionalists would say, it doesn't matter how you feel, get to the appointment. Get to the, show up on time, right? The thing is, is that when, when we are so caught up in that worldview, we, our emotions tend to uh, make us their slave. Make us their slave. You know, Jesus is great with emotions. He's wonderful with it. Who, who else do we see be able to express himself? I'm overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, right? Uh, we see Jesus be able to be honest about who he's honest with his emotions, but his emotions don't control him. And for you traditionalists, he doesn't stuff them deep down, right? He doesn't just say, don't talk about it, right? He's, he's, he's constantly moving, moving out to a, a quiet place, a solitude, place of solitude to pray. Um, we have to first... Try to connect it to. We have to first, in order if we're going to come to a true gospel identity, we've got to be poor in spirit. Right? We've got to realize that we cannot, the gospel is not something that we can achieve. We've got to first receive it. We can't, God is the initiator of the covenant. Okay? Now, behavior is important. Don't get it twisted. Behavior keeps us within the covenant. Right? But God is the only initiator of the covenant. We are the poor, the blind, the crippled, the lame. And the God is the one on the corner who said, can you come over to my house for dinner? And we went. But I didn't do anything. I'm a mess. God goes, come on over. God establishes the relationship. God reaches out. He's the one who extends the hand. And St. Augustine, in his book, Confessions, says emotions are not a problem. The problem with emotions is that yours are disordered. Emotions are wonderful. They've got to be in the right order. And God has to be that primary emotion. Everything else falls under, under that. The problem is not desire or emotions. The problem is that they are unruly and out of control. 
right? The problem is not that, that we should uh, desire those emotions more, more or less. We should, the problem is we, that we desire God too little. Right. And so you begin to see, wow, this is beautiful, that there actually is a path through, a path through all this, to be able to be validated by the only one who can validate us, and sure, to appreciate that I need the community to help me out. We all need help. It's good to know when I say something nice, people to smile. That's helpful. It tells me that was good, Drew. People like when you're nice. That's helpful to me, okay? You'd be surprised. When I do something that's mean, I need you to go, that was mean. I need you to raise an eyebrow. I need you to, we need community in a, to a certain extent. But community cannot be our primary validator. We need to know ourselves and know our hearts and know our emotions to a certain extent, but it cannot be our primary validator. This is where we get into trouble. You know, Jesus, he was a man of poverty, right? He entered the world. He lived, uh, born in a manger. He stayed at Passover in a borrowed room, and he was buried in a borrowed grave. During his ministry, he had no place to lay his head. He was as poor as they come. When Jesus was born and his parents took him to the temple to circumcise him, they paid the amount that is said in the Old Testament that you pay if you are poverty stricken. They paid two birds. Jesus' family was a poor family. He lived a poor life. He spent his life ministering to those on the fringes of society who are oppressed, who have fruits of their field taken away by injustice. And he's saying, listen, this is why I am here to many, in many ways. This is a big part of why I'm here. But it's not just about that. It's about digging deeper. It's about finding out oh, what are we enslaved by because God hates to see us. Guys, it is awful to see how many of us are going through mental, spiritual, and physical anguish. It's so common. And everyone's trying to find something new to fix it, right? To, to, to get this new thing. And I'm not saying that, oh, that's bad or whatever. I'm just saying I think that there is a spiritual aspect to this, the bedrock of our identity in our lives, that if we can truly see it and have a gospel identity, the one where we can say in John 17, Jesus says, I want them to know that you love them as you love me. That if we can know that, it's amazing how we're able to be confident with people because we know Jesus loves me. I got him. Our devotionals, our quiet times, our worship, our accountability time with people, the more we have that great validator in Jesus, we'll be able to be courageous in our lives to reach out. Maybe you're now going, I'm just feeling guilty about this lesson. He just made me feel so guilty. But all these things, that's probably pretty good. The sermon shouldn't end on guilt, right? We're going to get to the grace part. But the idea is that we should feel that guilt at some point and say, yes, I can't achieve it. Let's go to Jesus for my identity. And his embrace actually, I think, will launch us to be able to do things we never thought possible. Um, it's amazing. It's amazing. When I first became a Christian, I despised sharing my faith. Hated it. Every second was so painful. It just I'm, I was a people pleaser. I wanted to look good. And my friend Nick uh, would take me to my middle school. He's like, let's share our faith with your friends. <laughs> I was like, no, not me. I'm 14. Please go away. You know, um, but it's amazing now. And it doesn't always happen. But now I find myself talking to strangers, you know, um, and it's natural. It's weird, right? How many years is that? 15 years later, however old I am spiritually, I don't know. It doesn't matter. But all those years later, it's amazing how, right, God transforms us. Right. And if I can tell you anything about my generation, it is they care a lot less about doctrine and a lot more about experience. 
They don't want to hear about a gospel of power. They want to feel it. They want to know it. They want to live it. And I'm sure that's all of us. We all want to, this isn't just about ascribe to this teaching. It's about actually living it in the here and now, doing it. I know COVID's on, so, you know, just put this through your COVID uh, filter in your brain to make it sound in a way that makes sense and doesn't cause you to stumble. But there are people out there that are oppressed. Our faith must lead us out those doors into a world, into a community, into your neighborhood. It must do it or else it's, what is it for? It must lead to action. It must lead to courage. It must lead to humility. It doesn't do that by working harder. It doesn't do that by trying to achieve, right? We must first receive and then we will achieve really because he achieved. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's 1 Corinthians 5, 21. God made Jesus to be sin for us, not to sin, but to be sin, to be your sin, to take your sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Church, I am excited about what's going to happen in Charlottesville and Harrisonburg. I'm excited about these past 12 months. I hope that it has caused you not to look. Sure, there are things in our world that need to be changed, but to look inside yourself and to make sure that you have a reordering of desires and that God is that number one. He is your validator. The beautiful thing about Christ is he became poor for us. God didn't send you a check. Right? God came and dwelt among us. God came and lived among us. God came and connected. Right? Doesn't mean you can't send the check, right? One of the most beautiful things is that God loves is the widow with two pennies. Because she gave what she had. I pray that we can give what we have, but I pray that we can know that it's not just that. It's also greater than that. And as we give this special collection to India, a country that has faced a horrible disaster these past 12 months as we give to a camp that's going to help nurture and take care of our children up in Philadelphia, as we give to a campus ministry here at UVA and in James Madison University, where so many students walk around unaware that they're enslaved to their emotions, unaware that they put incredible pressure on themselves, incredible pressure on themselves, regardless of what worldview they have, modern or traditional. And that Jesus wants us to have a gospel, a gospel that is actually good news. They yearn to hear it. They want to hear it. And church, I pray that we all can have a gospel identity. Thanks for listening to the Blue Ridge Podcast. My name is Will Portillo. And if you'd be interested in more resources like this or connecting with us, visit us online at blueridge.church or connect with us on Facebook at Blue Ridge Church of Christ. Visit us on YouTube and subscribe for weekly sermons, encouraging news, and short devotionals. Thanks for tuning in and see you next time.